Welcome to Healing Wisdom, a Thursday morning talk show featuring guests sharing their stories and knowledge. We discuss the healing aspects of the arts, metaphysics, social justice, and adventure through all types of terrain. So join me, Pandora Peoples, here on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown and WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. We're streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. My guest today is Executive Director of the New England Innocence Project, Radha Natarajan. The mission of New England Innocence Project is to fight to correct and prevent wrongful convictions to ensure justice for innocent people in the criminal legal system. Today, we talk about the reasons for wrongful conviction and how this organization helps to exonerate the innocent. Welcome, Radha. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. First off, tell us about your staff, your network, and a bit about who you are. Great. Um, So the New England Innocence Project, as you already heard, we work to correct and prevent wrongful convictions, but we also support people who have suffered from long-term incarceration and from wrongful convictions. So our staff is really geared towards approaching those three different goals. We have lawyers and investigators and people who are working with our applicants to try to free and exonerate people who have been wrongfully convicted throughout the six New England states. We also have people who sometimes they're doubling in their roles, but people who work to communicate the causes of wrongful conviction and who work on policy in order to try to raise awareness and prevent wrongful convictions from happening. And we also have a really incredible exoneree network comprised of people who are formerly incarcerated or who are directly impacted in other ways who provide some of that healing and support to the people who have been freed after long-term incarceration. And so that together, they make up the New England Innocence Project. The New England Innocence Project started off working on biologically based cases, which needed proper forensic testing, but now you've expanded your reach from there. So can you tell us about the services you provide? You know, originally, and and sometimes even now, it was necessary to prove innocence through DNA because It was at a time where people did not believe that wrongful convictions happened. And in order to convince a judge, convince a court that this particular conviction needed to be overturned, we needed evidence as conclusive as DNA in order to convince them to overturn that conviction, to convince them that injustice had happened in that particular case. However, after many, many years of DNA exonerations and the research that has been done on exonerations, not just here, but nationwide, it has become clear not only that this is not a rare catastrophic incident, but rather it is something that can happen quite easily. That's one. We've also begun to recognize what leads to wrongful convictions. What are the things? Because we learned that through the DNA exonerations. And number three, we recognize that there are so many different areas where a 
criminal prosecution can go wrong, starting with an investigation and through the prosecution and an exoneration. And so I think also I should add that most cases, most criminal convictions do not involve biological evidence. And therefore, there is no mechanism to prove innocence through DNA. And so what we do now with the appreciation of all of these things is that we absolutely look at cases that have evidence to be tested, but we also look at cases that don't have evidence that can be tested for DNA. We pursue those cases. Sometimes we pursue them slightly differently because in a case where testing is available, we likely, we would try that first. But what we've learned is that fact investigation, talking to witnesses, some of whom, you know, are all over the world and we have to go find them. And these are cases that are 30 and 40 years old, right? Sometimes there are witnesses who were interviewed 30 or 40 years ago that we didn't even know about. An investigation that into potential suspects that we didn't even know about, right? So there are things like that we learn about. In addition, there's other aspects If so-called science or scientific evidence was used to convict someone, sometimes we learn later that that was actually flawed, right? And that knowledge, that evolution in the science is something that helps us reveal what actually happened or what didn't happen. And so we have more tools now, and we also have a, a judiciary and a public that in general is more aware that wrongful convictions happen. You served as a public defender for 12 years before becoming a staff attorney with New England Innocent Project in 2015, and then you became executive director in 2018. Can you talk about how your experiences as a public defender made you aware of systemic problems, perhaps racial, cultural, and class bias leading to wrongful incarceration? Even before I became a public defender at the Roxbury Defenders, I was well aware of the racial disparities in the criminal legal system. And in fact, I think that was a very significant aspect of why I wanted to be a public defender and why I wanted to do that at the Roxbury Defenders. But until you are a public defender and you actually see how cases are investigated and prosecuted and how easy it is for for mistakes to happen because of how many people are involved, how how quickly things go by, even though liberty is at stake. I don't think I could have appreciated all of the ways in which a wrongful conviction could happen without having been a public defender. You also see how easy it is for cases to go through without much scrutiny, which is a part of that. You know, more than 90% of cases are cases in which someone enters a guilty plea. And that's not necessarily because they're guilty. We know from the DNA exonerations that many of of people who were exonerated through DNA actually pled guilty or gave false confessions. And what that tells you is that there is a default in our system in which the person who is arrested becomes the center of a lot of pressure and coercion and things that are in our system that kind of make it hard to actually fight those charges. And so many people choose 
rationally to not do that fight. Because that fight, if you lose that fight, you lose much more than, um, you lose many more years, you lose your control over the situation, you lose a lot of things in that process. And um, so many people choose to plead guilty. But for those who choose to go to trial, um, you know, it is, and, and, and they end up being found guilty, even though they're innocent, that fight is particularly bitter um, because they went in with a faith that the system had all the tools to get it right. And sometimes it doesn't. Um, so being a public defender, I think, was a window for me to see all of those up close, to walk with people into freedom, but most importantly, to be with them as they made this very difficult choice. And in, and I think calling it a choice is also, I, I struggle with that because when you have a system that is so much bigger than you and you have all of these pressures, like, is that choice even really yours? Um, but in any event, I, I was able to see that up close. And I think that that is really the, the insight that I draw from now. Can you talk about some of the other reasons that wrongful convictions happen? Like eyewitness misidentification, you mentioned, there's flawed forensic evidence. There's this tunnel vision by investigators. Are there, are there other factors too? So there are factors that have been researched that I think are very significant, some of which you've named. Of course, eyewitness misidentification, it's one that we've heard about probably the longest and you know, I think people have begun to realize how difficult it is to make an accurate eyewitness identification in the context of a criminal case and how easy it is to get it wrong, even when the person is quite confident. There's a lot of cases that involve that. There's, of course, flawed forensics. That is the use of or misleading, the use of evidence that is presented as scientific, but actually is not developed in a scientific way and actually leads to the incorrect conclusion. An example of that is, you know, in the past, firefighters used to be called in for, for arson investigations to determine whether or not a fire was intentionally set or was actually an accident by, you know, wires or some other mechanical failure. And the criteria that was used to make that very critical determination of whether a crime even happened was made with assumptions that turn out not to be true. And so there are these misconceptions that have come into the courtroom in the guise of science, and they're quite convincing. And now we know about some of those, for example, bite mark evidence. They used to believe and hopefully don't still, but but certainly that does still happen. They used to believe that if someone made a bite mark, that it was a unique impression that would be held such that you could then identify someone from that. And in fact, we have an exoneration in Massachusetts from a bite marks case, a DNA exoneration. And so these are some of the misconceptions we thought. So we call that, and it's kind of a general category of flawed or misleading forensic science. 
and keep in mind on that, you know, lawyers, that's defense lawyers, prosecutors and judges, they're not scientists. They're oftentimes, they oftentimes do not have an understanding of science, but yet they are the ones who are being asked to both proffer, so put forward as well as challenge this evidence. And so you can see how that could go wrong. You also have incentivized testimony. That is witness testimony that has either come about through payment or has come about because they are facing their own charges. And if they testify in the way the prosecution wants or the police want, that their charges will be dropped. These are incentives for someone to give testimony in a criminal case. And that has been a leading cause of a wrongful conviction. And you can kind of understand why, right? And it's very hard to tell when that testimony is true or false. Another piece, of course, we talked about is false confessions where people, it could be through mental illness, but it could be just through coercion. It could be through sleep deprivation. It could be because of their age. But in any event, someone gives testimony that is false, that is against themselves. And we've learned a lot about false confessions, how to recognize them in the science. But the courts haven't really caught up, frankly, to that. And almost invariably in those cases, the person who falsely confessed believed that the investigation would eventually lead to the truth. And yet that's not what happens because when you have a misidentification or when you have a flawed forensic opinion or when you have an unreliable informant or when you have a false confession, it leads the police to stop the investigation. They say, okay, we've solved it. Let's move on. And that's where the investigation stops. And so that's why these lead to wrongful convictions. But one I, I have to mention and is critically important is the role of race. Because the role of race in the criminal legal system is undeniable and is, is demonstrated through the data, but also through the history, in that the criminal legal system does not operate in the same way for people of color, especially Black men and women, as it does for other people. And I think that that is really, when you look at the numbers of wrongful convictions and exonerations, you look at the data, you will see those disparities play out there. Um, and I think that's incredibly important to mention. One of your exonerees, Robert Foxworth, spent 30 years behind bars for a murder he didn't commit. In one of your videos, he speaks about everything he missed with his family, how wrongful convictions cripple families, and he says he felt as if he was kidnapped. And he feared dying in prison. And he felt lost when he got out because 30 years had went by and he wasn't familiar with the new technology with computers, and he hadn't had a cell phone before. Fred Clay was in prison 38 years. Tommy Rosa was in prison for 34 years. Jabir Pope, 38 years. Albert Brown, 38 years. And they said that they felt like it was a nightmare to be disconnected from their families and know, you know, their grandparents had died, their, some of their parents had passed on. Can you talk a little bit about the psychological needs of victims of wrongful conviction and their families. So first, I just want to clarify a couple of things. So not all of um, the folks you mentioned are exonerated yet, and not all were represented by the New England Innocence Project. However, they are all part of our community, 
and are a very significant part of the community of folks who support each other post-release and that the Exoneree Network, you know, supports. And so I just wanted to just clarify that one, one thing. But importantly, there is a shared experience that you draw from, which is the amount of loss. So that is loss of family members while they were in prison, a loss of consistent and stable relationships and being able to be there for their family, even if they didn't lose them. Being able to develop those relationships at critical points. I mean, many of these men went into prison when they were either teenagers or very early in their youth and missed not just milestones, but also like developing relationships at that critical time with their family and like to be a sibling, to be a son, to be a father, to be an uncle, you know, and they did everything they could from prison. But prison, is intended to separate you from your community. It breaks those connections in such severe and traumatic ways and in ways that are not even necessary. For example, in recent years, they have even stopped letting men in prison have actual mail that they can touch, that instead they copy the mail. And so they can't even feel that paper from their child with the drawing or um, or a photograph or something like that. Those very tangible things um, that is a connection to the world outside prison, outside the walls, even that is being taken away. And I think over the years, there is an effort by prison officials to take more and more of these connections. And it's been incredibly difficult. And and when people get out of prison after long-term incarceration, as all of these men suffered, it is a journey to rebuild. So there is the healing from the trauma, which is difficult and complicated. And there's many layers of that. And there's also the, the question of what now? After all of this time, having been disconnected from technology, I mean, it is literally a new world. And how do you navigate that in this? And so the Exoneree Network is there to step in in exactly this place to try to walk with people through that healing process because everyone involved in the Exoneree Network are people who also suffered that same process. And is still going through that process. And so they heal together. And I think that's really critical. In addition, though, there's tangible things like technology training, right? Giving people laptops and cell phones. And, and when you get out from even a wrongful incarceration, you're given nothing from the state. You are not entitled to anything. And so you walk out. Sometimes you don't know when you're about to walk out. You've spent decades in prison. That becomes your family and your community inside. And all of a sudden, the doors open, but you don't have money. You don't have a job. You don't necessarily have a place to live. You don't know how to, you know, use the internet. That is a more complicated picture of freedom. And yet freedom is the goal, but it's also the starting point, right? It is the starting point for everything else so that people can thrive. There's actually many, many victims of wrongful conviction. So you have the people who were wrongfully convicted who were in prison, you have their family members 
you have the communities from which they were taken. And I say that because communities are targeted in the same way that the criminal legal system is. And so it impacts certain communities more than others. You have the crime victims who thought that they were getting justice somehow by being told that they could understand how something happened to their loved one. And in fact, that was not true. And you have the system itself and our belief as people in that system and the integrity of that or the, or the idea that it is unlikely to make mistakes. All of these things are victims. The only estimates we have are of people who've actually been exonerated. But even that doesn't capture, and that's, you know, thousands of people from across the United States who have spent tens of thousands of years in prison for crimes they did not commit. But even that is the tip of the iceberg because each of those is an official wrongful conviction that has been recognized. And what has happened in our cases? The first thing we know is that each exoneree lost before they prevailed. All of the men you mentioned, Robert Foxworth, Jabir Pope, Albert Brown, and so many more, you can list all of them. They all lost before they prevailed. So what that tells you is there is such a resistance, a fierce resistance to overturning wrongful convictions. And so right now we have several people who we are fighting for. We hope we're successful the first time, but we may not be. But that doesn't mean that their numbers should not be counted. Their voices should not be counted. Um, they must be counted. And I think another piece of data is that we can only take on a very small fraction of the number of people who write to us and say they've been wrongfully convicted. And we're not making that decision because we don't believe they've been wrongfully convicted. No, we have to prioritize cases based on the resources we have. And so there are people who were wrongfully convicted and are no longer in prison and they want to overturn their conviction. And we support them, but we don't typically invest resources because we have other people who are serving life without parole. That is life, that is death by incarceration. And so we have to, and we do prioritize those folks. And so there are so many people who won't be captured because there are not enough resources. Even if we doubled and tripled and quadrupled our staff, I could not take on all the cases of wrongful conviction that come our way. And that is the reality. And so I think that it is a hard thing to know. It is hard because of the way the system is. And just keep in mind how many people touch a case, a criminal case, you know, it has multiple investigators, there are multiple witnesses, multiple prosecutors, defense attorneys, judges, jurors, appellate courts, forensic analysts, you know, other kinds of experts, all of these people. And if any one of them makes a significant error, but most of the time it is throughout the process, there are errors it could lead to a wrongful conviction. And it is actually not that hard for something like that to happen. And so I think it's unknowable. We would like to end wrongful convictions. We would love to not have to exist as an organization. That would be the goal. But I don't see that happening, at least not in my lifetime. 
So from your vantage point, there are a lot of systematic changes that can happen that can actually improve the court system and actually improve the whole justice system, right? Yes and no. Yes. Okay. How how can systematic changes start happening and who can advocate for that? And how can the system begin to change or has it? So there are things, there are small changes that can be made all the time. And I think that those small changes are things that happen, but they're never they're never sufficient because this is not an easy fix situation. This is what we're talking about is actually the fundamentals of our criminal legal system. And what I mean by that is that we believe that we have the tools to find the answer to the question, who committed this crime? So that even that, is a myth. I mean, sometimes we do, but oftentimes we don't. And we're making guesses. And whenever we make guesses, we're going to make mistakes. So I can think of examples of exoneration cases where the police officers during investigation actually interviewed the person who committed the crime and said, no, I don't think this person could have done it based on them being so charming versus our client who they thought, That person is acting in a way that is deceptive, right? Even that basic question, which turns out not to be basic through the science, but that basic question of during investigation, do you does the police officer believe the person or not can lead to a significant wrong turn? We are asking our system to give us an answer to questions that sometimes cannot be answered. And I think that that's a fundamental issue. That as a society, we have to think about that. But in, in relationship to that, we, we believe that if we find an answer, sometimes it's the wrong answer, but if we have an answer, that somehow we will be safer. And let me tell you that every single one of the people, like the exonerees you mentioned and so many more, when they were sentenced and they were put away for life, some even given the death penalty, the community felt safer. They were all innocent. So our entire idea about safety and putting people in prison in order to give us safety is something that we have to interrogate and we have to really examine. Because if we don't have the tools to answer these questions, and yet the consequences are very severe, right? People lose their lives over this. Are we creating safety? Do we know how to create safety? Are there better ways to create safety? And I think that there are places that are starting to make changes in this way that are fundamental. That is things like, you may not think they're connected, but things like a guaranteed income that is given to you such that you can fulfill your needs. What does that do to safety in that community, right? There are communities that are safer. And what do they have? They have resources, right? These are connected things because if communities have resources, then crime is far lesser. Violence is far lesser. And if you do have violence and crime, are there ways that actually get at safety? Does incarceration get to safety? Does incarceration without the tools to even figure out who to incarcerate, does that get you to safety? So these are all questions that I think as a community we have to grapple with. And I think the the key is that 
you know, we are the ones who are supporting policies and politicians and budgets, right? This is a local question, a local issue. And I think that people can learn about and show up to participate in the process of budgeting and to allocation of resources. Are we going to put the money in more and more police officers and prosecutors? Or are we going to put the money in resources for the community? And I think that is the question of public safety that is important here. My guest today has been Radha Natarajan, Executive Director of the New England Innocence Project. You can go to newenglandinnocence.org for more information. You've been listening to Healing Wisdom at Outermost Radio. All of our shows are podcasts at WOMR.org. Also check out HealingWisdomRadioShow.com and contact me at Pandora at WOMR.org. theme music is provided by Mazin. You can find her website at mazinmusic.com. That's M-A-E-S-Y-N.